So uh, even though I really don't think I have anything to say, I'm not going to take too long to say it. I mean, I, I don't want, I mean, I, I won't let you run out of tape. I'm an alcoholic. I didn't come here tonight to take a course in charm school. Uh, I think a lot of people come to AA uh, thinking it'll make them more attractive. Uh, sometimes it does, sometimes it don't. There's a lot of confusion in the area of being an alcoholic nowadays. Uh, God, it, it, it's, uh, I, I've just about stopped reading the newspapers because every day they got something new about being an alcoholic. They got it messed up with the genes and the environment and the hormones and stuff I don't even believe I got, I mean, to tell you the truth of it. <laughs> and they got grants for finding out how you became an alcoholic. And I'd like to get my hands on some of this grant money. Now, I don't need it, but I could use it. <laughs> See, the thing about a grant is you don't have to put nothing up. You don't have to put no matching funds up. They just give it to you. That's what the serenity prayer is all about. See, the serenity prayer is a typical alcoholic prayer. It's a moocher's prayer. It says, God grant me. That means I ain't got nothing. You put it all up, see? And then it goes on to list all the things that I'd like to have. But the main reason I'd like to get a hold of some of this grant money is I already know how I became an alcoholic. You're not supposed to make generalizations in AA, but I'll go so far as to say I know how every blessed one of you became an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic by drinking. <laughs> now that's pretty deep stuff. You can't get that published in USA Today. <laughs> and I don't think my childhood had anything to do with it. I mean, uh, you know, on Monday I think I had a horrible childhood, and on Tuesday it looks just as rosy as everything could be. I, I, I really, I had a good childhood as far as I'm concerned, and uh, prolonged adolescence, but uh, <laughs> I was raised by women. I'm an Irishman, really a third generation immigrant, and I was the hope of the family on both sides. Well, that's not exactly true. I had one cousin on the other side. But nobody ever really counted him from day one, I mean, as a hope. Uh, and and I, the women that raised me always told me I was adorable. I mean, I, I uh, and I rose, I grew up thinking I was adorable. And sometimes I still think so, you know. <laughs> 
But I remember one time when I was right in the throes of my drunkenness, which sometimes is associated with being an alcoholic, and my wife said, you son of a bitch, get out of this room. And, and that was the, f I was in my 30s, for crying out loud. And that was the first time I had ever heard a woman say a harsh word to me. And that really affected me. I don't know when I started drinking. I, you know, I hear people say, you know, there's so much of this going on, and, and I don't understand. I'm not, I'm not knocking it or anything. Don't misunderstand me. But, you know, I hear people say that they were six years old and three months and two days, and it was 6.30 in the afternoon on the 17th of February that they took their first drink. And I don't have any reason to doubt them. I can't understand how in the hell they took the drink and can remember so much about what time it was, you know? I, mean, I, I always had a lot of confusion between time and drinking. In fact, there were periods when I drank under certain circumstances that time became no factor at all. I was subject to periods of temporary amnesia, which are sometimes called blackout. And a blackout's not the same thing as passing out. I've passed out many and many and many a time. Pass out, all you do is drink enough and go find a corner and stand up in the corner long enough till you flip down on the floor and you're braced on either side by the wall and you just sleep there until you wake up. You wake up with a sore neck, but usually nobody pays any attention to you, but that's not the same thing as a blackout. I mean, a blackout, for God's sake, you take a few drinks, you're usually not drunk, you perform delicate surgery while you're in a blackout. Right, man, or go to a bridge game and play fantastic bridge hand. And the next morning, if you're like me, you're used to being awakened with, well, you really did it last night. <laughs> Whether it was surgery you were doing, the bridge you were playing, or whatever else it was. And here comes this morning after you've done all these heroic things, and not a word is spoken. Everything is rosy around the house, and you were just a little angel last night. No patients coming in to complain to you, anything like that. Everything is all right, and you begin to wonder. You see, an alcoholic can't take adversity. That's why he drinks. He can't take prosperity. That's why he drinks. So, you know, nothing's happening, and you get upset when nothing's happening. At least I do. And you begin to go around it asking people what you were doing last night, but you can't walk up to somebody and say, look, what was I doing last night? <laughs> or you can't ask the office staff, how did these sutures get in her mouth? <laughs> you know. So you get cunning with a kind of a district attorney cross-examination. I mean, you have to frame your questions just right 
to get answers to find out what in the devil it was you were doing last night. I've had that happen once or twice. Drinking didn't come easy to me. I mean, it didn't come natural. Originally, when I drank, I'd puke. And a lot of people don't like to hear me say that. They, they, they uh, in fact, up in Toronto, they had a conference. In Toronto, they got a system up there where, and they have a huge convention there, 5,000 people. And what they do is they call you up and ask you if they can submit your name to the committee for a speaker. Well, they called me up and I said yes. I found out later that at the committee they listened to tapes and all this kind of stuff and they had me propose for the banquet speaker and they had a rather heated discussion as to the appropriateness of having a guy talk at the banquet who stressed the fact that he puked a lot. Somehow or another, I passed muster, and uh, I got to go to Toronto and puked up there. <laughs> but you know, you never know who you're going to get with uh, whatever you say up here, and that's why I don't think it really makes any difference what you say. I never will forget, and I can't remember where it was. It was some little old dinky town over in Louisiana, and it was just about twilight when I walked in there, and there was some old guy that looked like he was on his last leg, and when he saw me walk in the room, his face lit up, and he said, Doc, are you going to puke on us tonight? <laughs> but I did. I, I, I did a lot of puking in my early drinking, and people tell me that I ought to say that I was sick at the stomach, but that's not the same thing. <laughs> it really isn't. I mean, I've been sick at the stomach, and I know what it is to be sick at the stomach, and, and it's not a pleasant feeling, but it's not the same thing as puking. Mothers of infants know what I'm talking about, really, you know. Uh, you see, a lot of times I'd take a drink of two or three, and, and I, I'd be feeling just as good as I feel right now, and out of a clear blue sky, I'd puke. <laughs> and anything you do over and over and over, you get good at it, and I got good at puking. I, I, I got so I could walk down the street and puke and never miss a step. And never get any on me either. <laughs> and later on I learned something else. Uh, and that is that if you once master a skill, you never entirely lose it. After I'd been sober a little while, one time uh, my wife's son and, uh, and, and wife and, and, and little infant child came to visit us. And they brought this 24-hour flu bug with them. And, uh, you know, with that stuff, you get sick in all directions. <laughs> and it, it was the first time I had ever been sick sober. <laughs> and we don't have but one bathroom at home. And uh, my son was a navigator in the Air Force at the time. And, and uh, I told him, I said, you know, if you know better in the air, than you are in the bathroom, the country's in a hell of a shape. <laughs> but I was just as good as I was 30 years ago. I, I could be sitting around that round table in the dining room and get up and go do what I had to do neatly. 
and come back and uh, never miss my turn to talk. And I don't think this has anything at all to do with me becoming an alcoholic except one thing. This is what I call punk kid drinking. And a lot of people do it. And that's the end of it. And it don't bother me a whole lot when I read all these alarming statistics about all the people that are drinking in high school and God knows whatever else. I mean, that's their business. It really doesn't get me too excited based on my own experience because I don't think that what I just described to you had anything to do with me becoming an alcoholic except one thing. And that's the only reason I tell it, absolutely the only reason I tell it, and that is that it illustrates a point that I think I really should stand up here and say and that is that in order to be an alcoholic, you've got to drink. And a lot of people don't understand that. Now today, really, it's the kind of end thing to belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not like it was when Neil and I first got in. And it was a kind of a secret society, and you had to slip down back alleys sometimes to get, you know, keep from people seeing it. It really is an end thing to get into AA. Christ, Liz Taylor's been in about seven times, I mean, (laughs) on the front page of the National Enquirer every time she goes in. I never had anybody take my picture when I went in. There are a lot of people who like all the good things we got in AA. They like all the hugging and the kissing and the loving and the concern and, and, and the feeling that we have for each other. But they miss out on the part about drinking. I know people that'll drink and puke and quit. And you can't get any place that way. You gotta give it a shot. I mean, you know, a a try, a fair try at any rate. And so I think it's important for me to stand here and tell you that in order to be an alcoholic, you gotta drink. That's just all the hell there is to it. And while we're on that subject, I think there's another thing that's not completely understood, and I really think that it's our fault. Because I don't believe we tell the people the whole truth when they first come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's this, that there is a requirement for membership in AA. Now, I didn't make it up. It was here when I got here. And the requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous is a desire to stop drinking. I think the trouble is that people don't really know what a desire is. I think many of us think that a desire is something that if you got it, it's all right. If you don't have it, it's okay. Doesn't make any difference one way or another, but that's not so. I know things are different nowadays, and I don't really have anything to say about that, but back in the days when I was actively engaged in chasing women. Uh, That's what the women did to us. Uh, They egged us on and and put a lot of ideas in our heads. They knew by instinct that attraction was better than promotion. And and they did the right feminine things that come natural to them and got us all ready for action, and then one day, now when we were ready, 
they drew a line and said, uh-uh. And what they said, really, if you ever stop to think about it, was, if you've decided that you want what I've got and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, And then you're ready to take certain steps. <laughs> of course, it's some of these we bought. <laughs> we thought we could find an easier, softer way. You see, that's a desire. A desire is a screaming, meme itch. To get the thing you desire, and you'd do anything in God's green earth to get it. And I'll tell you another thing about a desire. If you're going to have a desire, you've got to have some kind of general idea of what it is you're going to desire in the first place. I mean, you can't just go out and sit in a field and desire. But I didn't keep this kid punk drinking up. As I said, I was the hope of my family to improve ourselves. And they sent me off to college. And I looked forward with tremendous anticipation to going off to college. I come from a small town. I could make some remarks about it that I frequently make, but there are too many people here from the town, and so I just say that I, <laughs> I just say I come from a small, genteel town in the heart of Dixie. And, uh, but I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get out of there and get out in the big world and find out what it was like. And, and as I say, my folks had always, told, had always told me adorable, I was adorable, and they also told me how smart I was. And I wanted to get out and get those college degrees. That was the thing back when I was a kid, college degrees, you know. And when I came to AA, man, I got two college degrees. Can you imagine that? Two college degrees I got. And when I came to AA, I was heavy on that. And people have been talking about sponsors. I had one of the nastiest bastards <laughs> that God ever turned loose on the face of the earth for, 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 for a sponsor. And I remember one time I was talking about those college degrees I had, and he reminded me that rectal thermometers have degrees. <laughs> And everybody knows what they do with them, so, you know. <laughs> and then my folks had told me I was intellectual, too. I mean, I, I was told that I was intellectual. People still tell me that I'm intellectual. And that is a word that I am coming to detest, is the word intellectual. I see people with ruined lives. I see drunks laying in the ditches covered with oil, and they barely can raise their head. And they say, did you know I'm intellectual? <laughs> For my money, a minimum definition of being intellectual would be the ability to learn from experience. And I got a dog that can do that. <laughs> but anyway, I went off to college, and I, I, I thought, you know, it was going to be great. And it wasn't great at all. I got off amongst a group of people who seemed to know so many things that I didn't know. I don't mean everyday things, but I mean they knew things about things like literature and art and architecture and music 
and, and, and these were things that I was shaky on at the very best, and I felt uncomfortable in their presence. Uncomfortable in a way that is hard to describe. I, I, I hear people say they felt alienated, lonesome, alone, and all these things. I, I didn't really feel that way, and in some sense I felt that I belonged, but basically I, I just knew I didn't measure up in some kind of undefined way. And I remember one night when I had just, after I'd gone off to college, I mean, eight couples of, four couples of us rather, went out for a steak dinner. And we were seated around table and the waitress came around and asked everybody what kind of dressing they wanted on their salad. And when she got to me, I said, Kraft. <laughs> well, see, I, I can tell I'm going to have trouble with you all tonight. <laughs> Just like I had trouble back then. But you see, hell, I didn't know any other kind of salad dressing except Kraft. I mean, and I heard these stupid people around there talking about putting sour cream on the potatoes. Well, we, we never... We'd let the cream sour enough to make biscuits with it or something like that, but you sure in hell didn't put it on baked potatoes. But when I said craft, everybody laughed, and right then and there, I began to develop a lifestyle that lasted until long after I had been in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was this, that whenever I said anything, I had to observe you closely to see how you understood it so I could decide how I meant it. <laughs> and if you laughed, I was a comedian, and if you looked puzzled, I was a philosopher. <laughs> and somewhere along the line, I began to drink again, and something had happened in between this kid drinking back here. I don't really know what it was, and it doesn't make any difference. But this time when I drank, Something changed in me. And I know exactly what it is, was. I knew then what it was. I know now more clearly what it was. When I drank then, people changed. Sometimes people say to me, no, you changed. No, 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 people changed. Normally, if I look at a group of people like you, I would have only one of two thoughts. Do you threaten me or could I use you? But with a drink or two or three in me, it was entirely different. I could look out at you, I could go amongst you and genuinely participate in the things that you do. I mean genuinely be part of it, participate in it, and this is something that I simply could not do sober. Sober, I was a nerd. Drunk, by God, I was charming, and I knew it, and you knew it too. And I could just look at you and tell by the look in your eyes that you were saying, Tom, we care for you. Come out and be one of us. And so I learned that it was well for me to have a drink or two or three when I was going to be amongst people because it changed people. It was a whole new ball game. 
And so this became a new part of my life, to drink when I was going to be amongst people. And it wasn't just when I was amongst people that I discovered that the change took place. Sometimes I would drink when I was by myself. My last name is O'Sullivan, and, and uh, I did a lot of drinking by myself and looking in the mirror. I used to take a drink or two or three, and I'd look in the mirror, and I'd call myself Sully Baby. And I'd smooth my hair back, and I'd say, Sully Baby, you're going to be all right, you know. Or a lot of times I'd say, Sully, baby, you're going to make it. And I didn't know what I was going to make, you know. But <laughs> it's just that I could get familiar with myself by, you know, calling myself Sully, baby. And I had this inner assurance that everything was going to be okay. So I found out that I liked to drink when I was by myself, too. And sometimes, when I was going to dental school in New Orleans, and I lived in an apartment building on the second floor, and outside was what in the daytime was a crummy-looking scene. A couple of streetcar tracks out there on St. Charles Avenue, some scraggly old trees. But at night, with a drink or two or three in me, God, it was beautiful. And I used to like to sit by the window and take a drink or two or three and look out at the sheer beauty of the night. And sometimes I'd take a drink or two or three and sit there by that window and look out and I'd get sweet music on the radio and I'd cry. And I love to cry. I don't mean ball. I mean just fill up right to here with real hot, wet tears and have them flow over and course down my cheeks. And I always did think that there was something beautiful about having a drink or two or three and feeling good and being sad. And so it's no mystery to me why I became an alcoholic, nor how I became an alcoholic, because I pursued this as a way of life. And later on, I'm going to tell you some parts, not all, but some parts of how low an alcoholic like me can get. But I want to tell you one thing right now, but it's, because it's important for me to say. And if I don't get around to tying it in, just forget about it, you know. No, don't forget about it. Try to figure out what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> you see, my problem never was what alcohol did to me. Now, I'm not talking about why I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm talking about what my problem was. My problem never was what alcohol did to me. Although, brother, I guarantee you it did everything to me except turn me loose. My problem always was, is now, and always will be what alcohol did for me. That's my whole problem, right there in a nutshell. And by now I was caught up in this web. You see, I hear people talk about that they hope they never forget their last drunk, and I understand what they're talking about, and I applaud what they're saying, and I agree with them, and I think it's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't apply to me, because hell, for my last five years, I was drunk all the time. 
I don't mean I was drunk staggering around. I was drunk laying down, you know. But uh, I don't even know my real sobriety date. I got it narrowed down to two or three days. But uh, again, I'm not one of these people that, you know, at six o'clock in the afternoon on the 12th of February, I said to myself, well, this is it, you know. No, I just, I quit drinking, that's all. But the thing about it is, my last drunk has no significance for me. But I'll tell you what does have significance for me. Since my problem never was what alcohol did to me, but it always was, is now, and has been, has been and is now what alcohol did for me, I have inside me a time bomb ticking away that could explode at any moment and destroy me in such a cruel and, and, and heartless manner that, that I even hesitate to, to, to contemplate it. But I liked what it was doing for me back in those days when it made me feel part of the people and I could see the beauty of the commonplace outside and I could feel the feelings that were associated with music and tears. And so I pursued it as a way of life. And, and as I said, it's, it doesn't puzzle me at all that I became an alcoholic. But the thing is, it was as though I had been walking down the street and turned a corner and got lost and couldn't find my way back. Because I had built up this successful life that I had shot after. I had these college degrees. I, I was a dentist. I had taken an internship. I was married, had a beautiful family. I was in the regular army. I was overseas on a sensitive diplomatic mission on the general staff of vehicle and chauffeur assigned to me. All these things that they say alcoholics like, power, money, prestige. I had them all there right, 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 right in the tip of my tongue, my hand, and I was only in my early 30s. I was the rosy-haired boy of the Corps. And then people started talking ugly about me. They said, I smell bad. Well, I'll admit that sometime in my drinking, I quit bathing. I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't taper off, I just quit. <laughs> but there was a reason for that. Uh, my wife, who's sitting right down there, and I've been married to her for 38 years, and I don't care what the hell your problem is, her first suggestion is a good hot bath. <laughs> now, I think, I want to get one thing straight. I mean, I will take a good hot bath. I ain't crazy about it, but I'll take it. I mean. And I think that when you've been an alcoholic for as long as I have, you have to set up a, a system of priorities and values that you're going to live by. And I have done that. And as I say, I will take a bath, but it's way down on my list of priorities. I mean, I, I can think of at least 30 things I'd rather do than take a good hot bath. But this was when I was still drinking. And one Saturday night, she conned me into taking a good hot bath, and I got in there, and 
I must have been running kind of slow in the brain department that night because just as I got in there and the water began to take effect, effect it dawned on me that I didn't have enough booze left to last me for the weekend. It was Saturday night. And we lived a block and a half from the Texas liquor store uphill, I might add. And they closed at 10 o'clock and didn't open again until 6 o'clock Monday morning. And I jumped out of that damn tub. <laughs> I was headed down to the Texas liquor store to get my weekend supplies. And she had hid my britches. Now the motorcycle guys with their leather jackets, you don't see as many of them as you used to see. But there's some tough macho guys out there, I know. But I want to got a message for you tough macho guys. You guys that double up your fists at your wife like that. The message is this. I don't care how the hell tough you think you are. You ain't nothing without your britches. And I didn't pray in those days because I didn't have anybody to pray to, but I found somebody to pray to real quick. I got on my knees before her and, and prayed to her to give me back my britches. <laughs> and she gave them back at the last possible minute. And I threw the britches on and ran that block and a half downhill. That's all I had on was the pants. Ringing wet out of the bathtub, dashing in the Texas liquor store trying to look cool <laughs> to uh, to get my weekend supply of whiskey. And my mother had a lot of failings, but she didn't raise any damn fool. I mean, uh, one traumatic experience is enough for me, so I just knocked off the bathing <laughs> completely. And, you know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it, it, it's a shame uh, the conditions I had to come in and some of the humiliations I had to undergo. They didn't have all this spray stuff that you could shoot under your arms when they came in the AA. And uh, I don't know if they had a powder claws that you could rub up. They didn't do any good or anything like that. But, you know, you've got to do something. But anyway... When I, I hear people say that when they came to Alcoholics Anonymous that everybody had their hands open, their arms outstretched, and said, we've been waiting for you, you know. <laughs> well, they didn't do that in my group. They weren't pleased at all that I came, and, 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 and they held meetings. You know, they would get uh, pillars from adjacent groups to come advise them as to whether or not there was any legitimate way they could refuse me uh, being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the first things that really attracted me to AA. It's the first place I've ever been where nobody can kick me out. I learned early on that Alcoholics Anonymous we are a cross-section of the communities we live in. And like the communities we live in, in AA, we got a lot of nice, wonderful people. We got a few bastards in here. And I learned early on that no bastard can kick me out of AA, by God. The only person who can kick me out of AA is me. 
But they sure didn't have their arms outstretched, and and uh, some of them weren't pleased with the way I smell. And then there was another thing. Well, you never had any trouble getting a seat at a meeting that I was at when I first came to there. There was always one in front and back and on either side open. You see, when I first came to AA, something was crawling on me. And I spent a lot of time looking for it. <laughs> and toward the end of my drinking, I had developed some muscle spasms that I could be talking to you, and all of a sudden, oop, my hands would go out like that, you know. Or I could be walking down the street and, whoop, I would go my leg. It didn't bother me at all. As a matter of fact, when it went away, I missed it. But I'd be sitting in the meeting looking for whatever it was that was crawling on me, and all of a sudden I'd have one of these spasms, and everybody would think I had found it. But as I said, they said I smell bad, and, and then, then, then I was overseas on, you know, on this high-class mission, and they, they started to say my hand shook. Well, I knew my hand shook. I was well aware of that. And I had perfected a system where I was in real good shape up to 10 o'clock. If you'd come to me by 10 o'clock, you got the best professional attention that you could desire. But there again, my wife enters into the picture. She's one of these women that believes if you're going to be well, you have to eat well. And she wanted me to leave for work with a hearty breakfast under my belt. Well, in those days, you know, I hear people talking about spirituality nowadays, and sometimes I get confused. Sometimes I think that when people talk about spirituality, they have a mental picture of maybe you left the windows open and the fog came in and the dew point lowered and moisture condensed out over everybody and you got saturated with spirituality. And I just don't think that's the way it is. I experienced the most spiritual act that I am aware of tonight in front of many of you right here in this room. I sat down and ate my dinner with no preparation whatsoever. I just went over to the table, got what I wanted, came back, sat down and ate. But in those days, I couldn't eat without getting ready to eat. So as much as I hated to get up early in the morning, and I never liked to get up early in the morning, I had to get up early enough to get drunk up enough to eat breakfast, and then breakfast would sober me up, and then I had to get drunk up enough to go to work, but not so drunk that I couldn't go to work, and that's work. See, this is not any 40-hour week I'm talking about. I'm talking about 365 days out of the year. Every night when I went to bed, I knew exactly how I was going to feel in the morning, sick in the dark. But I had it down where I could take enough so that I was in real good shape up to 10 o'clock. And just before I leave to go to work, I used to put a drop of Shalimar perfume on my tongue. And later on, they had some proceedings against me in the Army, and they asked a major that had an office next door to me 
how I smelled when I came to work in the morning. And he said he smelled like a drunken French whore. <laughs> and I can remember a lot of times that I would have somebody cut on the inside from here to here. And it'd come time to sew them back up. And the clock would strike ten. And I'd have to stick a lot of cotton in their mouth and go off in the corner and take a drink. And they were narrow-minded. Now you see, look, you're just like your colonel was. I mean, he, he never could understand what I meant either. Look, if I was a jack-leg dentist, I'd have let him go with the damn gums flapping in the breeze. <laughs> but I never have been that kind of a fellow. I've always been a professional man with the highest ethical and moral standards. And I wouldn't dream of letting anybody leave my office without being properly sold up. And the only way I could do it was take a drink. And I was the only dentist within 1,500 miles. I knew that something was wrong with me, and I went to an army doctor that was well thought of, and I told him I thought I might be an alcoholic. I have no idea where I got that word from. I was a captain in the dental corps at the time, and he said to me, I'm glad you came to me. Just last week, I cured a major general. So they put me in the hospital and they stuck a lot of needles in me and out me and up me and the cure didn't take. And for a long time I thought it was because I was just a captain. And I'm not trying to be funny. I can remember walking down the street and saying to myself, man, if I was just somebody else, all this wouldn't be happening to me. And I got the same advice you got. They said to me, why don't you drink like Bill? Bill's a bald-headed brother-in-law of mine. I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous lacking a few weeks of 28 years, and I feel about Bill tonight exactly as I did 40 years ago. I don't want to do anything like Bill. And besides, how do you drink like Bill? You ever tried to drink like Bill? I don't know how Bill drank. And then they said to me, get right with God. Well, I got the same question tonight that I had 35 years ago. How do you do it? That's my question. How do you do it? Now, I'm going to stand up here and make a statement that could make half of you get up and walk out the room. I'm going to stand up here and tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous does not have the answer to your problem. And the reason I say that is there is no chapter in the book titled There's an Answer. The title of the chapter is There's a Solution. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to put you in the solution and come up with your own answer. And I oftentimes think that perhaps it is the true glory of our fellowship that we really don't pretend to have an answer to the problem. But what we do have is a time-tested, experience-proved solution, and you've got to put you in the solution and come up with your own answer. And I actually think that not just in the area of alcoholism, but surely including that, that that's the trouble with the whole stupid world that we're living in. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry that you run into has got the answer to your problem, and they don't even know what your dumb problem is. 
But in Alcoholics Anonymous, what we have is a solution. And as I said, you got to put you in the solution and come up with your... And then they tried to scare me into drinking. And I don't think you can scare an alcoholic into drinking. That reminds me of a story that I got absolutely no business telling at all, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> it's about a little boy that his mama caught him playing with himself. And she gave him a doomsday lecture. She told him, she said, that'll make you go blind. And he said, well, could I keep on doing it just till I have to wear glasses? <laughs> and you see, that's almost a textbook definition of being an alcoholic. If it ever really gets bad, I'll quit. Well, I could take you on a downward spiral that would make your hair stand on end, but there's no particular point in doing it. What happened to me was I ultimately lost everything I had. That is my wife, family, home, car, money, you name it. And I became a street bum on the streets of the city of San Antonio. And finally, because there was nothing else left to do, I went back to this town of Lake Province that I'd left years before to become a success and a hero. And I hitchhiked into Lake Providence one Labor Day weekend on a Tasty Bird poultry truck. And even that guy hurt my feelings because I was telling him how he could make some money if he would just follow some ideas that I had. And I remember just as we got into town, he said, oh, hell. And I went back to the town I was born in and lived with my mother. She was in her 70s. I'm in my 70s now. I got another message for you younger people. Your parents love you, and they're delighted to see you occasionally. But don't expect them to have paroxysms of joy when you beget two children and then come back to live with them and want to have things your way. Life just don't work that way. I went back and I stayed there with my mother, and I became the town drunk in Lake Providence. Now, we don't have town drunks anymore. The reason we don't is the culture has shifted. It's shifted to the suburbs. And we really don't have anywhere, hardly, a downtown where you could have a town drunk. We don't have the bridges for them to sleep under. I mean, they've all been turned into culverts and everything, and, you know, and sacrificed to modern technological progress and deprived us of one of the most colorful uh, portions of our civilization. So we don't have town drunks anymore. I mean, we have condominium drunks, shopping mall drunks, parking lot drunks. And you know, we are really strange people. Now, honest to God, we're all here together, and there's no animosity, I hope. But we really are a queer group of people. I don't think I have ever seen an anonymous alcoholic. Like when the cops come, I mean, if, 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 if the cops come, a drunk will run off and hide. But not an alcoholic, I mean, he'll stay right there. And if he's on this side of the cop, he'll go around on the front there where the cop can see him. And we don't think anything about falling down and throwing up and getting drunk and making asses out of ourselves in shopping malls and condoms. 
plazas and all these other places that they got nowadays. And then we come to Alcoholics Anonymous and decide to quit all that stuff. And the very first thing we say is, shh, don't tell anybody. I'm getting ready to change my life. I'm going to be a useful citizen, a decent husband, father, family, whatever it might have been. But don't let anybody know. So we're going around with our part of the bargain. We won't tell anybody. If they want to think you're still underneath the bridge, let them think it. It doesn't bother me. I'm not coming to your defense because that'd be breaking your anonymity, and I wouldn't do that. So I lost everything I had, and I was all by myself in this big house, and uh, one night, I guess it was night, I don't know whether it was night or what it was, it was in late February, early March, and you know, when the clock said four o'clock, I really didn't know what the hell it meant, uh, whether it meant four o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the afternoon, it didn't make any difference. But I was looking out a window one time. And while I was looking out that window, I just had a sudden influx of certainty that I was never going to drink again. And about three days later, of all things, I was taking a bath. And I remember this like as if it were yesterday. I, I had my left leg up on the edge of the tub, and I was drying with a towel, and I had again this sudden insight of this reassurance that I wasn't going to drink again. And shortly after that, a guy came by and asked me if I'd like to go to an AA meeting, and I said yes. You see, I would have gone any place. I had been to AA before. There's something I'd like to say, and I, I wish I could say it nicely, but I don't know how to say it. I had been to AA before. I don't know how long I went. I, 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 when I tell it, I say I went less than two years and more than six months. But I could figure it out closer than that. But I just never got around to doing it. And one night, I walked out of meeting and didn't come back. Now, I, I don't remember the night that I walked out and didn't come back. I don't remember having any reason for doing There's nothing to it at all. I mean, just to walk out and not come back. It's the simplest thing in the world. People do it all the time. You don't have to have a reason for it. You just don't come back, that's all. When I walked out of that meeting, whenever it was, wherever it was, I still had all the things that I held precious to me in my life. I had my wife, the job, the car, the money, the kids, and all that kind of stuff. When I came back into Alcoholics Anonymous five years later, I had a dollar and 35 cents in my pocket, and that was it. And the thing that I want to say is this, because I hear people every place I go saying, but I don't like AA. The thing I have to say is, who the hell cares whether you like it or not? We ain't running no damn popularity contest here, and I know charm schools. If you're an alcoholic like I am, you very well better sit out there and learn to like it. If for only one reason. It very well may be the only game in town in the final analysis. And I've seen it turn out to be that way, and that's the way it was. And the reason I went with that guy that night was at the end of my drinking, I had lost all my friends and my enemies too. 
people think if you you know if you don't you know if you don't have any enemies you're all right but you know, that's, that's not so you see a lot of people think that hate is the opposite of love but it's not actually hate and love have got a lot in common for one thing they both bind you to the object of your feeling you're just as bound to somebody that you hate as you are to somebody that you love that's how I sponsor people I can't get them to love me so I get them to hate me I mean that's no problem and as long as they're hating me they can't get me off their mind see and I got a lot of people walking around hating my guts exactly the way I want it the opposite of love is indifference and that's the thing about having an enemy you see an enemy will react against you but indifference this is what the alcoholic eventually or this is what this alcoholic eventually was faced with was indifference nobody really cared didn't make any difference just a nameless nut walking down the street even people that known me all my life didn't give a hoot and I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and I did a lot of things in AA that you're not supposed to do I, out of ignorance again I with apologies to people that stress the intellectual part I simply didn't understand this thing I had a hell of a time figuring out what it meant then but I kept coming back and I began to hear things that rang bells with me and something began to change inside me I began to listen I didn't catch on to everything that was said at once. I told somebody here tonight. I became the kind of a guy that would go home and go to sleep and wake up at 15 minutes after 1 in the morning and snap my fingers and say, hell, that's what he meant. But it began to seep in and seep in and seep in. And I, I, I got taken up by the fellowship. And that's what the fellowship does as far as I'm concerned. The fellowship is a unique group of people, men and women, who will hold an alcoholic up, literally hold him up, until such time as he can learn to walk on his own. And God knows I needed somebody to hold me up. And, 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 and with all my hostility and arrogance and ignorance and stupidity, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous was always there to support me to be stern with me to be sure not to baby me but to support me in the hopes that someday I might walk alone and then I became interested in the steps and I began to go through the steps and do something about them and don't get excited if you're sitting out there I know what you're thinking you're saying God almighty damn as late as it is and he's just getting around the steps and he looks like a guy that might go through all of them. No, no, no. <laughs> Mildred took care of the third step this afternoon. Mildred said something that ought to be chiseled in stone someplace about the third step made a decision. That's all there is to the third step is made a decision. Look, I've been in AA a few 24 hours, and I must have taken that step at some time in my life. And in the interval between the time I took it and tonight, my life has changed, my will has changed, my understanding of God has changed. And if we were here together, assembled a year from tonight, 
I would have to tell you again that in that interval, my will had changed, my life had changed, my understanding of God had changed. Everything in the third step is a variable that changes with the passage of time, except the decision that I made. That's all. And that's all there is to the third step, is to make a decision. You see, if the purpose is to take the book and move it from here over to here, obviously you've got to pick the book up. And then you've got to walk over to here the way you want to put the book down. You still haven't done anything. Finally, if you're going to do it, you've got to put the book down. And you've done a lot, but you still haven't made the decision. You don't make the decision until you put it down and turn your back on it and walk off and start doing something else. And that's what I did with the third step finally. I made the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I made that decision. And I'm off doing something else. The decision is there. The problem is God's, it's not mine. And my life, in a sense, is his problem, too. Surely I have some direction in my life. There's no question about it. But basically, it's his problem, not my problem. My goodness. I don't have time to fool around with that kind of stuff. As I heard a guy say one time, he said, if we would just take this program and use it as leverage, like a good swimmer who learns to float, just enough to keep out of the weeds. Then the stream of life would take you to where you're supposed to be. And where you're supposed to be is the place where you are today, a happy, blessed person learning to love and to care and learning to know that someone else cares. And that's all life is about, I mean. So I finally went through all those things, you know, I, I, I'll tell you one thing about one step because this is important to me. I, I had said when I first came into AA that I, 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 I'd take the steps down through four, but I'd never take step five. Because I didn't mind talking to, about it to God, but I'd be damned if I was going to admit it to another human being. And when I was about eight years old, I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church, and one Sunday I stole a dollar off the collection plate. Now, I got caught and I was punished, but I couldn't accept the forgiveness. And so I carried this around with me all around the world. Being a regular Army man and being in the Army during World War II also, I lived all around the world. And nights without number in Rome, Paris, Naples, Cairo, Tokyo, wherever it might be, many times, just as I was about to doze off to sleep, up would pop that buck. And I'm not saying it made me drink, but I am saying that it didn't contribute anything to any sense of serenity. And I had made up my mind that nobody would ever know about me stealing that dog. Only three people knew about it, me and the priest and my mother, and I can't tell you how thrilled I was when the priest died. I was overseas, and my mother wrote me a letter that he's dead, and it just tickled the daylights out of me. Now nobody knew except my mother and me, and I knew she wasn't going to tell. And I'm not saying that it is the only thought that crossed my mind when I watched my mother die, 
but it was there. Now I was home free. Nobody knew about it except me. I had it all to myself. See, it was a clenched secret. And then I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I run into some of you loose-mouthed people. Well, that's a fact. Some of you people sit around and tell each other things that no sane human being would dare mention to his minister or lawyer. And I decided that I was going to tell somebody about seeing that book. And then I found out another thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. It's hard to tell somebody in AA what a rat you are. You start out to say, I want to tell you what a rat I am. They say, wait a minute, let me tell you what a rat I am. <laughs> a lot of people that are not AAs, they get confused sometimes when they see AAs. They'll see four of them at a table and a lot of talking going on. They think a lot of communication is taking place, but it's not. Four monologues are going on. Everybody's just sitting around in neutral, waiting for somebody to take a deep breath so they can dive in and take control. And I remember nights without number, I'd start out for the meeting and I'd say, I'm going to tell somebody about stealing that dollar, and I'd get down there and they'd interrupt me and start talking about themselves. I remember one time I got real hot about it and I said to myself, by God, I'm going to tell somebody about stealing that buck if I have to keep coming back until I'm great. So I was glad when I could find somebody to sit down and shut up and let, them, let me say all the things about myself that I'd been wanting to tell somebody all my life. How many times have any of you in here wanted to tell somebody, really wanted to say something about yourself, and you got a pat on the shoulder? You're a nice fellow. We know we got the greatest confidence in you. And that's all. This guy sat there, and he let me pile a whole pile of crap right there on his desk. And he didn't interrupt me. Just enough to keep me going. A few, mm, uh, nah, stuff like that, you know. Once I got started, I couldn't stop. And I was well aware that I was taking a risk. I was well aware that this guy might, guy might get a third of the way through and this fellow might look at me and say, Look, buddy, it's true that we deal with the scrap heap of humanity, but we really didn't have people like you in mind. <laughs> but of course, he didn't do that. He let me lay the whole thing out, and when it was all over, he looked me right straight in the eye, and he said, Well... You know, we love you. That was the first time in my life I had ever experienced unconditional acceptance. There's a four-letter word for unconditional acceptance. It's love. That's what love is. Unconditional acceptance. It didn't make any difference to him who I was, what I'd done, anything else except that I was a human being in trouble who had come to him. And he wanted me to know that he understood and that he accepted me and that his hands were open to help me if I would accept his help. Let me just say this, and this really is the end. I guess if I had to sum it all up, it's back on page 569. I think it's page 569. It's either 569 or 596. I don't know which it is. It's in the spiritual appendix. It's appendix two spiritual experience. 
One time I told this story, and I said it's on page 596, and a guy called me up from Chicago to tell me I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. But I'm pretty sure it's on page 569, down at the bottom of the page. The last two sentences. This is what it says, approximately. It says, with few exceptions, our members discover that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently come to identify with their own concept of a power greater than themselves. Many of us believe that the awareness of this power is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. This is what's happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was upheld by the loving care of an understanding, disciplined fellowship long enough to do the things in the program that would bring this into reality in my life. Let me say it one more time. With few exceptions, our members discover that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently come to identify with their own concept of a power grip. Many of us believe that the awareness of this power is the essence of a spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. You held me up. You took me a hostile, arrogant, no good, foul-smelling, drunk. Showed me the road that I had to go held me up long enough until this could become a reality in my life. For this, I shall be forever grateful to each and every one of you. Thank you.